Welcome to the West Wind Unitarian Universalist podcast. Join us in creating compassionate community. Okay, so I have a sermon today called Aligning Image and Identity. I was really trying to come up with a pithy way to talk about this, and I like to surmise that in the title. I don't know if I nailed it with this one, but I'm going to force all of you to participate, so here we go. We only have so much time left. Um, This all starts with, there's a TV series on Netflix called The Messiah. I binge-watched it with my wife. It's an interesting intellectual look at whether or not the second coming would be the way we expect it to be. Depending on which religion you are, the second coming looks very different, or the first coming, I guess, depending on which religion you're participating in. Um, But this particular fellow in this TV show um, was of uh, Iranian descent, and he had very long, luxurious, dark hair that came well down in the middle of his back, and kind of like that that, that rugged, half-shaven, stubbly look, right? Like, you know, he's been out there, like, making food on a campfire for a minute. And he was very contemplative and quiet. And he never once said who he was. He was constantly putting out questions and statements that forced the people interacting with him to decide who he was. It's an interesting concept. And then I, you know, woke up one day and looked in the mirror and realized that I was like a hairy mess. Um, Those of you who don't know me very well, I used to have a very long mess of hair as well as a much longer beard. In fact, there was a point in graduate school, there's a t-shirt, it's like, you know, um, you know, just, just starting your beard, and then like, you know, you're a biker. And I was somewhere in the wizard to like, hermit who lives under a rock stage. Um, so I trimmed that a bit, but I'm not really much for, I don't like to shave, let's be honest. And I don't like to pay people to cut my hair, it seems ridiculous. But my wife told me that she was tired of kissing the mess of hair that was me. And I like to get kissed by my wife. It's one of my favorite things. It's in like the top five. And so uh, I went to a barber. And I was like, hey, man, I need you to cut my hair and shave my face. And he's like, of course. How short do you want me to shave your face? And I was like, bald. And he was like, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but the state of Oklahoma no longer licensed barbers, and I can't shave you. I can get a buzz clipper and I can buzz it as short as the buzz clippers will get it. And I'm like, that doesn't help me because then my wife doesn't like kissing sandpaper either. We're out. So then he cut my hair and then he showed me a mirror and I was like, no, I'm in short. And then he cut it again and I was like, no, I mean like short. And then he cut it again and I was like, I guess that'll have to do because you don't understand the word short. <laughs> but it made me question like when I went home and showed myself to my wife and she was like, ooh, and I got my kiss and I was very happy. Um, What kind of responsibility do I have to project my new image into the world? It would never have occurred to me, say, 25 years ago, that I need to take a photo and distribute it amongst all my friends. So if they accidentally ran to me in a grocery store, they wouldn't be like, oh my gosh, you got your hair cut. They'd be like, oh, I saw that photo you distributed and looking good. One like. (laughs) Most of the people I know see me on a pretty regular basis. They're going to figure it out. I cut my hair. Big deal. Um... But it really made me thinking about identity and image and what is identity and image and what necessitates identity and image. I took a really fun class in graduate school. and it, The whole class was the imagery of God, the historical representation of the divine from the first 
early, Christ, early Christianity all the way up into modern times. And part of that conversation was that pictures demand something of you. We read a book called What Do Pictures Want by W.J.T. Merchill. It's kind of more on the uh, advertising marketing direction for the book, but the concept still stands. Every image, in however it was created, is asking something of you, if nothing else, for interpretation. Many of us get frustrated in that, in that space, right? Like, I'm not a big abstract painting fan, and so it's difficult for me to discern what that painting wants from me and why I would want it in the first place. Um, modern photography, to a certain extent, I find difficult because it's trying to evoke a mood or theme, and I don't always find that my mood aligns with the artist's intent. But then it made me begin to wonder the image that I project in the world and how much does the image I project in the world, is it cultivated by myself and how much am I just kind of letting it run wild without really paying close attention, for instance, not shaving or cutting my hair for four or five years. So, number two, can you please stand up? Just number two. It's all good, but... Way to go. You guys are quick to move. <laughs> Please. I am aware that I am less than some people prefer me to be, but most people are unaware that I am so much more than what they see. Douglas Pagels. Thank you. Can number one please stand up? What people in the world think of you is really none of your business. Margaret Graham. <laughs> We are always projecting an image into the world. Even the choice to not have an image is a choice to project an image. Obviously, the image I project into the world is one of casual comfort. Um, I am not a big fan of being bound or tightened or constrained by, well, just about anything. Um, but in that respect, I also want to project a compassionate understanding, right? So I don't want my image to be so casual as to make people think that I do not care. Because I cultivate, and I do cultivate, an image of not caring about my appearance, my clothing, the way my hands look, the cars or vehicles that I drive, the home that I live in, all of those things are functional things for me, and I like to make them look like they function in my life. I have very few like objects or items in my world that are just there because they're a pretty little object or thing that doesn't have a purpose. I have very little use for it. It's very much the way that I do artwork. For very many years, my parents gave me an awful lot of art supplies for Christmas every year, but my parents are cheap, and so they were cheap art supplies. And cheap art supplies do not create uh, archivable quality artwork unless you break them down into their individual components, grind them into dust, and then repatriate them, which is what I do all the time. I find it very fun. So that said, we're going to move on to number three. Who's number three? Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, their lives a mimicry, their passions a quotation. Number four. One of the greatest tragedies in life is to lose your own sense of self and accept the burden of you that is expected by everyone else. K.L. Fox. Oh, and the other one was Oscar Wilde. Oh, yes, sorry. Number five. You were born an original work of art. Stay original. Susie Cassin. Stay original. 
the point of aligning your image with your identity, and I'm going to loosely use identity here. I realize that there are a wide variety of definitions for identity. I want to look at identity as an intrinsic character trait that does not change in a given situation, right? So you can be a police officer and do that job, but then go home and not be a police officer. But we know many people who are a police officer when they're on duty, and they're still a police officer when they're not. That becomes an identity, right? I am an artist, whether I'm standing up here and talking to you, or painting a mural, or helping my kids you know, put their shoes on. I'm still an artist. That's part of who I am in every space. What I want you to do is figure out ways that your image becomes your identity. It carries into every aspect of your life, right? You are unique as who you are, and that has value in the world. That value is projected through the image that you put forth. If you're not controlling that image, then you're undermining the integrity of your identity. If you're obscuring your identity with your image, you are still projecting an image. You are just making it difficult for you to be honest with yourself in every circumstance. Now I realize there are many different ways to project your image and identity in the world, and sometimes it is not always safe to do so. So I'm not encouraging you to go out and put yourself in harm's way. What I'm asking you to do is think about who you are in a given situation and what you're carrying in and what you're carrying forward. Sometimes that is enough to help kind of make flip that switch. Okay. I need number six to read. It's like everyone tells a story about themselves inside their own head, always, all the time. That story makes you what you are. We build ourselves out of the story. Patrick Rothbuck, The Meaning of the Wind. Number seven. It is easier to live through someone else than to complete yourself. The freedom to lead and plan your own life is frightening if you've never faced it before. It is frightening when a woman finally realizes that there is no answer to the question, who am I, except the voice inside herself. Betty Friedman. If identity is an enduring trait of self, regardless of the situation, then image could be part of your identity. But the image is contrary um, or malleable within various contexts. It's still participating in your identity. Unfortunately, it functions as a screen that filters your true self. We really want to be our true self as often as possible. I would hope. And if you really fear who your true self is, if you're self-conscious about that identity, then it's Sometimes necessary to just talk it out, right? Maybe you need to talk about it with someone that you trust or care about. Maybe you need to just write it in your journal and talk to yourself about it. Maybe it's something that you want to explore interpersonally, or maybe it's something you want to explore macro with other people. That exploration and that journey <coughs> to become more true to who you are, I personally believe in the long run is going to make you a more fulfilled and happy person. There was a really fantastic uh, um, Freakonomics interview that I heard today, and they not today, it was TED Talks today, in which they were talking about specifically um, that older people are happier. They've done study after study after study after study, and what they discovered is the older you get, the happier in general you are, and mostly it's because all the worries about the future kind of start to drop off. One of the comments from the interview was that uh, people in like a retirement situation um, don't spend a lot of time making a whole lot of new friends they spend a, a lot of time cultivating the friendships they have because there's only so much time left and there just isn't enough time to make 
a long friendship, right? So why spend that time and that effort when they can enjoy other things? They can enjoy members of family. They can enjoy spending time with their neighbors. They can enjoy culinary works. It is an opportunity to recognize that time is limited. And in that recognition of that limited time, really fulfill the things that make you happy. In a way that being young or being in the middle or not possible, right? I mean, when you're really young, your parents spend a lot of time telling you what makes you happy. Um, and then you get that kind of freedom and you go out in the world and everything's about the future, right? You're in your 20s, you're like, I gotta prepare, I gotta get ready, I gotta make these things happen. And then theoretically you get to a certain point in your life in which you're like, oh, well, you know, I didn't make as many things happen as I hoped. And I still have hopes that these things are gonna come to fruition, there's some anxiety there. But apparently, and I haven't personally lived this, there's a point in which you're like, screw it. <laughs> I'm just gonna do this stuff, this stuff makes me happy and I really don't care if other people think that it, what they think about it. It doesn't matter to me at all. And that might very well be like learning to ride the motorcycle or learning to knit or going out and spray painting or like sitting at home and watching endless YouTube videos. I don't know what it is. But that fulfillment becomes your fulfillment and that happiness becomes longer lasting because you've dropped a lot of those worries about the future. Number 15, this is a long one. Oh, not number 15, I'm sorry, number 8. I have different numbers. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Oblivion by Ben Foster Wallace. There was a basic logical paradox that I call the fraudulent paradox that I had discovered more or less on my own while taking a mathematical logic course in school. The fraudulent paradox was that the more time and effort you put into trying to appear impressive or attractive to other people, the less impressive or attractive you felt inside. You were a fraud, and the more of a fraud you felt like, the harder you tried to convey an impressive or likable image of yourself so that other people wouldn't find out what a hollow, fraudulent person you really were. <laughs> Number nine. This is also a long one. Thank you for reading the long ones, guys. Over the years, I've come to realize that the greatest trap in our life is not success, popularity, or power, but self-rejection. Success, popularity, and power can indeed present a great temptation, but their seductive quality often comes from the way they are part of the much larger temptation to self-rejection. When we have come to believe in the voices that call us worthless and unlovable, then success, popularity, and power are easily perceived as attractive solutions. The real trap, however, is self-rejection. As soon as someone accuses me or criticizes me, as soon as I'm rejected, left alone, or abandoned, I find myself thinking, well, that proves once again that I am nobody. My dark side says I am no good. I deserve to be pushed aside, forgotten, rejected, and abandoned. Self-rejection is the greatest enemy of the spiritual life because it contradicts the sacred voice that calls us the beloved. Being the beloved constitutes the core truth of our existence. Henry James Dowling. <laughs> Thank you. So, yes, the image you project and aligning it with your identity is necessary, I think, to be a full, healthy person. However, if all of your worry is about the image you're projecting, you can fall into the trap of either becoming a hollowed-out individual or becoming a self-loathing individual because you're not living up to the image you're trying to create and project. Both of those things are detrimental to self, right? How do we avoid that trap? Well, part of that avoidance of that trap is to acknowledge and be realistic about the image you're projecting. All you do is spend your entire life on six inch heels because you want to be six inches taller. It's going to be difficult 
to come to terms with the fact you might need a stool to get to the upper cabinet, right? If you can acknowledge you need the stool, you're still welcome to wear the six-inch heels. But that it's necessary to understand the difference, right? We have to integrate who we are into our identity and image. And if all we're doing is trying to obfuscate who we are with our image, then we make our lives very difficult. That duplicity of being is something that's not sustainable. It'll undermine the integrity of our happiness. So I'm going to end now with a comment. I do a lot of tattoos. I'm a tattoo artist as well. I see a lot of sticky name tags out there, so some of you might not know that. Uh, I'm a tattoo artist uh, Wednesday through Saturday, and I have an awful lot of people who will come in and they're like, is this tattoo cool? Is this tattoo going to make me cool? If I get this tattoo, is this going to make me cooler? No. <laughs> Nothing you tattoo on your body is going to make you cooler. Nothing you specifically wear is going to make you cooler. No way you cut your hair is going to make you intrinsically cooler. Mary Francis, what makes us cool? Coolness is not an image that can be bought or worn. True cool is an attitude that is projected from a person who is extremely comfortable in their own skin. Susie Cosman. <laughs> I encourage you all to find a way to be comfortable in your own skin. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Unitarian Universalism and to connect with us, please visit www.westwinduuc.org or find us on Facebook at Westwind Unitarian Universalist Congregation.